Would you guys welcome Jared Berry? Man, thank you, Dave. Quite an introduction. He loves to throw me under the bus immediately about my Patriot fanhood. Uh, I know there's a few, few Closet Patriot fans in here, right? Yep. We'll stay strong together. Um, man, I'm so, I'm so thankful to be here with you guys and uh, to be able to call Trinity our home church now and to, to be here each week and be welcomed, uh, uh, treated as part of the family. It's an honor. And uh, we're really excited, my family and I, and uh, thankful to be a part of this church. And I, uh, someone said to me one time that every, we all stand on the shoulders of great men and women who've come before us. And uh, it's an honor to hold this mic and be standing here knowing that uh, I get this opportunity today because I stand on the shoulders of great men and women who've come before. Um, one of them being David's parents, right? Tom and Uni. And also many of you, so many of you have... have been here, I'm sure, for a long time and a part of this journey, and um, it's, it's amazing that I get to step in now at this juncture and uh, celebrate with you guys. And, and I'm thankful. I've, I've uh, known David for about seven or eight years, and we met. I transitioned to become a youth pastor at church at the same time he transitioned to become DYD. And so we started becoming friends, and you ever meet somebody that you can just be yourself with? Right, you just really connect with. You're like, all right, I can be real with this guy. And uh, Dave was one of those guys. And so we started hanging out. We we started uh, developing a friendship. But I'm I'm thankful to now have him as my pastor because David not only became a great friend of mine, but he also became a mentor of mine. Really poured into me and and really helped me understand the gospel in a real way. I, I remember I'd already been a youth pastor full time. Now this is a scary thought, right? But I'm not your kid's youth pastor, so don't worry. Jason's smarter than I was. But I was a youth pastor full time for like five years, and I remember after having many conversations with David and and reading and and having God, I felt like I got saved for the first time in my life. And I was actually on a I was in the West Coast with him at a conference that he was speaking at. And I remember just being in the back and the reality of the gospel hitting my heart. And the, the reality that I didn't have to earn God's love and favor, right? Like, like my, I didn't have to be afraid that I was going to lose my salvation every time I messed up because it was actually tied into the work of Christ. And I remember, just, I remember just crying. Like, I probably weirded Dave out. I, I feel like he was like, whoa, whoa, this is a little too serious for me, you know? But, uh, but I, I mean, I'm, I, that was the influence that it had on my life, the impact that it had on my life. And, and so I'm, I'm thankful to be able to be here today, to be able to be with you guys and to, to speak. And, and I get to talk about um, one of our core values. And if you weren't here last week, we started this new series on core values. And um, we define values as it's a deeply held belief that inform behavior and shape culture. And this is really true because I've seen this as I've become friends with David, right? So it's a deeply held belief that informs behavior and shapes culture. And the two things I've seen this in David's life, especially now stepping into this role, is with his passion, his core belief of the gospel, and his core belief of food, right? <laughs> this and, and so I've really seen this as I've become the DYD now, because my first week on the job, I went to Springfield, Missouri for this DYD conference, and everybody I met, David doesn't realize the impact that he's had all over the country, right? But everybody I met was like, oh man, I'm like, yeah, my name's Jared, I'm the new DYD, you know, stepping in for David. They're like, oh, David, oh my gosh. And the two questions I'd get asked is, when are you writing a book? Which I'm like, that... No, that was, you know, and, and where should I eat? Those are the two questions. I'm like, you do realize like his giftings don't just transfer over to me. You know what I mean? Like, 
who do you think I called to ask where I should eat, you know? And I can't write a book. I can barely spell anything. I would, ha- I would send my stuff to him to have him spell check stuff. But everybody I meet would be like, oh, David, man, he, tra- like, he just transformed me. I- his books were amazing. They helped me understand the gospel, right? I could see that his value has transformed culture, has transformed people's behavior, and everybody's sharing to me. And, here- and-, and here's when my first week on the job, right? Everyone's like, oh, yeah, he changed my life. Like these deep stories about his spiritual impact. And then they'd kind of look at me with a look in their eye of like, man, we're really going to miss him. And then hit me on the shoulder and be like, but good luck, man. Good luck. All right. And, uh, and then the, the, the next thing I realized is that was a healthy culture he created, but he also has created some unhealthy culture. And this is in the area of food. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about when I share this story. I started to have lunches and meetings with youth pastors. And all of a sudden I realized something. They were very worried about where we were going to eat and the type of food that we were going to eat. Like, we would go, and they'd be like, hey, how's the food? Like, is it good? Like, hey, do you mind eating at this restaurant? And I'm kind of looking at them like, why do you care so much about where we're eating and whether or not I like my food? And all of a sudden I realized David has created a culture of fear (laughs) for eating bad food. Like, people are very insecure around him now about where they take him to eat and what type of food they can eat. And, and so, so I'm like, hey, it's all right. Like, I've, I've been doing some spiritual counseling and some healing for these youth pastors. I'm like, hey, just cry. It's okay. We can go to Taco Bell, right? It's all right. It's a new man in town. Like, we'll hit the Chinese buffet. It's okay. Shh. You know? So culture, culture, man, informs behavior and shapes Our beliefs inform behavior and it shapes culture. And I've seen that true. And this morning I get an opportunity to share with you about uh, mission. One of our core values, one of our beliefs here at the church, which is mission. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go listen to Pastor David's sermon. It's awesome and it will help uh, tie into what we're talking about today. I'm going to read from you a text at Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And then I'm going to pray. If that's good with you, let me hear you say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, you guys are ready. All right, Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him on the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. What an opportunity to open up your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch our hearts, that you would open us up to hear your truth. You would open us up to see the beauty of who Jesus is, that he grants us identity, and he informs our mission, God. So help us love him more today. Help us be more on fire for, to serve the mission of God than we've ever been before. And we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so this text is a story that may be a little strange when we're talking about mission to you, but I, I think this is actually a very profound text, and I hope as we dig a little deeper, you'll see what God is really doing here. And in this story, this is Moses who has just led the people of Israel. They're not actually really even the people of Israel yet. This is kind of the moment they become the people of Israel. And, and for 400 years, they've been slaves in Egypt, 
right? That's all they've known. They've been slaves in Egypt, and God uses Moses to lead them out of slavery, and they come to this place called Mount Sinai, which is a big mountain, and what's happening when they come in, if you could picture the scene, is the visible presence of God is at the top of the mountain. There's clouds, and there's smoke, and there's, I mean, they can, they can see something is happening up there, right? It's a supernatural uh, picture of God. His presence is there, and so they start to encamp all around the mountain, and God calls Moses up, and he begins to have words with him, and this is the very first moment that God does something incredibly important. He gives the people of Israel identity and mission, identity and mission, and he explains to Moses what we're going to see is there is an inseparable connection between who you are and what your life is about. So your identity informs your mission. Who you are will always inform the directedness of your life. What is your goal in life? What do you want to do? And so God brings the people of Israel, and he is saying to them these two things. Here's who you are. I'm going to give you identity, and then I'm going to give you mission. And, here, and, and it's pretty profound. So let's read. The first thing is this, right? It says in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So right here, we begin the identity portion. And what does God do? He speaks the gospel to them. Now, you may think, well, the gospel is not really in the Old Testament, right? It's not a New Testament thing. But in fact, the Old Testament has constant examples of the gospel, which point our hearts and point the hearts of Israel to the coming of Christ. So they didn't know Jesus, but they were getting a picture of what was to come. And this is one of those first moments. In fact, there's an Old Testament scholar, his name is Alex Matier. He says, this is one of the biggest pictures of the gospel we can see in the Old Testament. And here's why. God says, you yourselves have seen, right? So he says, you are passive. You didn't do anything. You were witnessed. What I did, I'm active, right? So God's the one who does it all. You guys were sitting back and you watched what I did. So God is laying out to them the heart of the gospel, which is this. I rescued you not because of anything you did, but because of what I did, right? You didn't do anything. You just sat there and watched. Meanwhile, I'm the one who actively sought you out. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who brought you from slavery into freedom. This is the gospel happening right in front of our eyes, right? So he says, you saw you saw what I did. You're passive. I'm active. I'm the active agent in salvation. And he goes on. He says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And what that means is it's an imagery. It's picture to us of this supernatural rescuing out of something. And then he says, and I brought you to myself. And in the Hebrew, that doesn't mean physically. What it means is intimately, right? God is saying, I brought you to my heart. And here's what's crazy about that. We're kind of used to this type of language, but in ancient culture, this did not exist, right? Ancient cultures, they did not understand this type of relationship between man and God. It didn't exist. They, they had what was called a symbiotic relationship. It was kind of like, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. So these cultures would give sacrifices to their gods in the hopes that the gods would then give them more crops or more babies or whatever, you know. And it's like, hey, we'll help you out. You help us out. But there was no love. Nobody loved their gods. And the gods certainly never loved the people, all the ancient culture accounts of creation were God's creating them to be their slaves, right? So God is saying something incredibly countercultural here. It's incredibly profound for the people of Israel to hear this. He's saying, I've not only rescued you and you didn't do anything, but I actually want to have deep relationship with you. Like, I actually want to know you. I actually love you. I'm going to bring you into my heart. I want to know you in a profound way. This is the heart of identity and the heart of the gospel that God is saying to Israel, and he's saying to you and I now through the work of Christ on the cross, that I've not only rescued you from your sin and slavery, 
but I actually want to know you through the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? We can know God today. And so God lays this out to the nation of Israel. This is the gospel. This is their identity. And the reason why he's doing this first is because everything we do will flow from this. Whether your life is productive in God's eyes or not is based on your understanding of your identity. So you'll see later on in the nation of Israel, their track record is whenever they lose sight of their identity, their mission fades. And then God will take his hand of blessing on them to help them rediscover their identity. This is identity mission is the narrative that you'll see throughout the whole Bible. It's woven throughout everything and it applies to you and I today. He starts with our identity. And then this is where, and we're going to land here for the rest of the time, God shifts into their mission, right? And so verse five, he says this, now therefore, right? Meaning, here's why it's important. Now, therefore, meaning because of what you've heard, right? Because of what I've done in you, because of who I've made you, now here comes your mission, right? So uh, mission flows from identity. And he goes, you will indeed obey my voice and you'll keep my covenant. You will be my treasure possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And listen to this verse six. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's what that means. Because we can think that means, well, God just wants to create kind of a holy huddle, Right? Like, oh, a group of people that are his people and everybody else is kind of outcast and he's just doing his thing with Israel. And you ever wonder, why is Israel so special in the old time? Like, I don't, I don't understand why God has, here's what this actually means. In fact, I want to read to you. This is out of one of the commentaries I read. It said, priests stand between God and humans to help bring the humans closer to God and to help dispense God's truth, justice, favor, discipline, and holiness to humans. This is what it means. God is saying to Israel, you have a mission. To be a kingdom of priests is to have a missional mindset, that your life is not about yourself. It's about interceding between humanity and God. It's about taking God and showing it to the world who doesn't know him, right? And then helping the world point their worship back to God. That's what it means. So Jesus, God shifts from here's who you are to now here's what your life's going to be all about. And this morning, I want to share with you, uh, we'll be quick, but I want to share with you maybe four things that we begin to see lived out in the mission of Israel that I think apply to us today, right? Four things. You guys ready for them? All right. Number one is this. They lived the gospel. So they lived the gospel, they proclaimed it, they interceded, and they preserved it. Number one is they lived it. And here's here's what we know. Israel was called to live in a certain way. Anybody read the Old Testament? Dive into the book of Leviticus, maybe when you're getting sleepy at night and you can't really, can't really totally knock off, right? You dive into Leviticus and you're like, oh, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense, right? It's, it's a book of the law, right? It's all these laws and, and these ways in which Israel's supposed to live. So God had very, very certain specific standards on how they were called to live. And if we're not careful, we can just assume that that was some weird sort of irrelevant holiness thing that had no purpose or mission. But in fact, it did. This was very much tied to their mission. God was calling them to live out the gospel. And here's one of the examples I want to give you. Leviticus 23, 22, it says, When you reap of the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, but leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I'm the Lord your God. That sounds like kind of a a strange thing, but here's what God is saying to them. I'm trying to instill a value in you, which will create a culture amongst you, which will be different than the rest of the world. So when every other culture was looking out for themselves and everybody else who had a field was going and they were gathering all the way to the edges, right? They were taking all the stuff for themselves. God says, no, Israel's going to be different. 
you're going to live the gospel by leaving some of your crops so you can take care of the poor among you, but not just that, the foreigner, meaning those who were not of Israel, right? Those who were walking through, those who were going by. God's trying to create a culture in them by instilling this value. He's saying the gospel lived out means the way that you do business, the way that you work every day is going to look and be different than every other culture around you. And it's not just for the sake of being different, but it's for the sake of sharing the gospel so people can see. And so you imagine other cultures, they're looking at Israel and they're going, what are these crazy people doing? They're like, they're giving away, you know, 10% or whatever percentage of their crops to, to poor people and to foreigners. This doesn't make any sense. And all of a sudden, when Israel understands their identity and God's blessing is on them, they're giving stuff away, but yet they're being blessed. You can see how countercultures would have looked at them and go, man, there's something there, right? There's something different. And so God's calling them to live different. Another example would be this. In Leviticus 19.28, it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or do not mark your skin with tattoos. Now, when I was in youth group, this was a favorite of parents who were arguing with their teenagers about getting tattoos, right? And I, I'm sorry if you're a parent in here, and, uh, but this is a great text, but it doesn't really apply to that conversation because here's what was happening. And this is, this is what I want you to see. All these rules and regulations, the, the calling of Israel to live a certain way was not just about holiness. It was about mission. What was happening in this moment is all these pagan religions and, and these cultures around them that they just came out of, by the way, for 400 years, they would worship gods and temples, and part of their worship would be to cut their skin and tattoo their skin as a, as a symbol of worship, of trying to get these gods to give them what they wanted. So when God says to them, don't cut your skin, right, or don't mark yourself, or other texts when he says, don't mix this cloth with this cloth, when you're like, what does this have to do with anything? What's happening is God is saying, do not behave like other cultures, don't inter- I don't interact with you the way other cultures interact with their gods, right? You don't have to beg me to love you. You don't have to try to uh, convince me to serve you. Like, you're going to live differently so that the world can see who God really is. We live the gospel. And so can you imagine how this translates to us now? As we look at Jesus Christ and we understand the truth of the gospel in our hearts, it changes the way we live. Can you imagine if business owners, right, that were Christians, stopped only being worried about the profit margin of their business? But imagine if we started thinking about my business isn't just here to make money, but it's also here to transform a community. It's also here to bless and take care of my workers and my employees that I can pour my life into, right? It's also to take heaven and bring it to earth in the way that I operate an amazing, healthy, well-functioning business. Can you imagine if employees... Right? We started to listen and submit and serve our bosses even if we know that they're wrong. Can you imagine if we stopped uh, stabbing people in the back and doing whatever it took to try to get ahead or to make a little bit more money and instead we started giving away credit, instead we started to take responsibility because we know God is sovereign, money doesn't have a hold on us, power doesn't have a hold on us, approval doesn't have the hold on us that it does to everybody else. Like, can you imagine how that would change? Imagine if every person in this church, when we woke up in the morning, we didn't look at our jobs as some dreaded thing that we have to go to, but instead it was our mission field that God's called us to serve. And if we're not careful, we can take living the gospel and apply it only to what we do in this building. 
And so when I sing on the worship team, that's me living. Or when I'm a Royal Ranger commander or a serving kids church or whatever, that's me living. Man, we would miss the heart of what God's saying. He's called us to live out the gospel in everything that we do. Number two is this. We're called to proclaim the gospel. Called to proclaim it. So Israel was called to live it. They were called to live different, but they're also called to declare it. And here's one thing that's interesting about Israel. Anybody read the Old Testament and think, man, there's a lot of fighting and war happening in the Old Testament. If you study apologetics, you'll know that uh, this is one of the biggest tools atheists will use to try to discredit Christianity. They'll say, look at the God of the Old Testament. He's this moral monster. He's this terrible person. But what's actually interesting is there's a reason why there's a lot of war and battles in the Old Testament. And it's actually two reasons. Number one is sometimes it's God's justice, right? God is bringing justice, and he's actually saving. So we know uh, communities like the Amalekites and stuff. I mean, these guys are doing child sacrifice and some terrible things. So administering justice is actually saving innocent people, right? So that's part of what God did, and he used Israel to do that. But the other part is this. In ancient culture, the the way that they would um, attach truthfulness or validity of a god would be to its success in battle. Right? So if two nations would go up against each other, everything was spiritual to them. So whatever nation won, the assumption would be their God's real, and the losing nation's God is not real. Right? That's what they believed. And because they were polytheists, meaning they believed in multiple gods, it wouldn't have meant anything to them to, to believe that the God of Israel was tr- true. What was crazy was when Israel said, there's only one God. Monotheism was crazy to them. So how do you get the attention of people to help them see who the real God is? In that culture, in that time, it was through military victory. So when God sends Israel to battle, it's amazing when you look at the battles of the Old Testament. Do you notice a theme? It's always these supernatural crazy victories, right? It's never like 10 Israelites versus one. You know, it's always like Gideon's 300 and, and God does these insurmountable odds. And so it's always this crazy supernatural victory. And the purpose of that is for countercultures to look and go, wow, their God must be real. Like, like maybe, maybe the God we're worshiping is false. And in fact, we see this, and actually, Pastor David did a sermon series on this, so I think you can go back on the podcast. We see this at the very beginning of this moment in Egypt. You guys remember the, the plagues in Egypt? Right? Every plague was actually attached to a god the Egyptians would worship. So God is saying to them, and, and remember, there's warnings, right? Let my people go. Let my people go. He's saying to them, when they refuse, your God's not real. These gods aren't real, but I am, I am, I am, I'm real. The, the stuff you're worshiping isn't. And what's amazing is we know that from the story and told in Scripture that there are actually tons and tons of Egyptians that leave with the nation of Israel and are in this group at Mount Sinai. Right? They heard the gospel through the proclamation of which God was real. So here's how this applies to us today. It applies to us today, meaning this, our job as followers of Jesus who understand the gospel is to show the world and tell the world in how we live, but also in what we say that the stuff they worship will never satisfy, right? We all worship stuff. We all look to stuff. So our job is to say, here's what, here's what the gospel is. The stuff, you're, the stuff you're worshiping, the stuff you're chasing, fame, success, money, notoriety, the perfect marriage, the perfect children. Man, I used to be there. I, I used to chase that stuff, but it doesn't ever satisfy, right? Like, let me tell you who Jesus is. And we're supposed to and called to do it in a way that culturally makes sense, right? 
So we're not called to necessarily, and maybe there, there were times in cultures where certain things worked, but now we're called to say, how do we communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to our culture? So here's the questions that I would have for us this morning. When's the last time we've engaged in conversation with people who don't know Jesus about Jesus? When's the last time we intentionally went out of our way to invest in a deep relationship with someone who, who didn't know God? Right? When's the last time we invited people to church? When's the last time we, we looked at our calendar and said, man, my, my schedule is based around me trying to help others see who Jesus is. Can you imagine if that became a regular part of our day? Some of us are, are so afraid to ever even say a word about who God is or about who Jesus is, and we're missing opportunities and moments. And then some of us, and I want to step on toes. Actually, I do want to step on toes. Some of us, we don't care. We're so unafraid to talk about Jesus, but we could care less about doing it in a way that culturally makes sense. You see what I'm saying? We don't mind stepping and, and crushing the toes of people and leaving in the wake of us all these people who are turned off to God. We're called to do both. We're called to speak truth in a way that makes sense to our culture. So live it. Proclaim it. Thirdly, we're called to intercede through the gospel. We see this in Israel. In Israel's case, right, they offer sacrifices, prayers. They also financially give. And what was happening here was Israel is called by God. Remember, kingdom of priests, right? They're kind of a middleman. They're called by God to not just do these things for themselves, but they're actually interceding and advocating on behalf of all of humanity. They are, they are standing in the middle uh, and kind of a placeholder for humanity, and they're called to fight for humanity spiritually. That's what Israel was called to do. God had a mission to rescue the whole world, to redeem the whole world, and he used Israel to be a part of his mission. And so they're called and they're, and they're interceding because of the work of the gospel in their life. Now they're called to intercede for all of humanity. And the same is true for us, although we thank God we no longer offer sacrifices, right? Because of the work of Christ, the sacrifice has been made on our behalf. But we're still called to intercede and to advocate and to fight for the people around us who don't know God. And, and some, some interesting ways that we used to do this, because I think for some people, it becomes hard, right? We're like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and, and I remember growing up for a long time, I thought, well, if I just, just be the nicest person in the world to people, but there's a problem sometimes, like I had a little problem with being the nicest person in the world, right? Like, and, and we're trying to figure out, what does this mean? How do I fight for people? How do I do this? And what I started to realize is, if we're not intentional about put, building rhythms into our life, that shift our focus from not being self-centered to being other-centered, it won't happen, right? You ever, th you ever think to yourself like, oh, I really need to reach out to this person. And then time goes by and before you know it, it's like six months and you're like, oh man, I never did that. Like, you know, I thought of them. How many times as a, as a, as a couple have this gotten you in trouble, man? Like, no, baby, I thought, I thought of doing something for you. Like, I, I was going to do it, right? But then it just totally jumped out of my mind. If we don't create rhythms in our life to be intentional, usually it doesn't happen. And so can I share with you one quick rhythm that, that was super helpful for me? We would, when we did small groups, we would tell people, find a few people in your life that you're going to fight for spiritually, right? And, and just start with this. Pray every day for them. Put a list on your phone, right? And every day when you get up, pray for them. We underestimate the value of that. And then we'd say, hey, once, once a week, connect with them. Shoot them a text. Shoot them a phone call. Facebook message. Set a reminder on your phone. Man, hey, praying for you, thinking about you. Right? And then once a month, hang out with them. 
Take them out to coffee outside of your regular gathering, right? So pray once, pray every day, connect once a week, hang out once a month. That simple function in your life will begin to get you in the rhythm of fighting for the people around you spiritually. And it's amazing what God can do when we just offer a little bit, right? And the other aspect of this is, is our giving financially. We, we had an, an amazing explanation of what the offering is earlier. But this is true. Part of the nation of Israel's giving was that they were sharing in the mission. And here's what's amazing. As a church, we understand that our giving doesn't go to something that doesn't matter, right? Our giving goes to the eternal mission of God. We give of our resources because we know it actually makes a difference. Like it transforms life in our community, but also all over the world. That's why we give, because it's a part of sharing the mission of God. So God's called us to live. He's called us to proclaim. Thirdly, he's called us to intercede. And lastly, and we're going to we're going to land this plane. God's called us to preserve the gospel. Preserve the gospel. For Israel, part of their role and responsibility was to preserve God's word and pass it to the next generation. Right? Preserve God's word, pass it on to the next generation. The reason why we're reading this text today is because they succeeded in that. And, and we're thankful for that. But we know in Judges 2.10, it says, There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, yet, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Oftentimes, Israel's failure to preserve the word of God and pass it on to the next generation resulted in years and years and years of unfruitfulness in their mission. You and I have the message of the gospel, right? We have our identity, and part of our mission is to take that message and preserve it and pass it on to the generations that are to come. What does that mean? It means the more mature you are in Jesus, the more we submit our preferences Right? We lay down what we want and what we like and what we think is the best to serve those who are less mature than us so that we can remove any sort of roadblocks that would get in the way of them hearing the gospel. And, and here, here's what's crazy. right? In my time in the local church, being a youth pastor, a young adult pastor for, uh, for uh, 11 years or so, oftentimes what I would see is, and this has nothing to do with age, but the people that were in the church the longest had the most similarities with the most immature people, and that the most immature people, which tended to be sometimes the younger people or new Christians, and the people that were in the church the longest both thought they had a right to have everything the way they wanted it, right? Because the longer you're in the church, the more the temptation is, well, I, I mean, I put my time in, right? I built this thing, like my tithes paid for this chair, and, and I've, I've served, and so now I deserve to have the worship style I want, or I deserve to have the paint color I want, or I deserve to have this or that, and how dare someone sit in my seat, right? Or, or, or I can't believe this kid's coming in with a hat on, right? And, and, and I remember hearing all these just crazy stories of ushers going, coming up to me with joy in their heart that a guy just left our church because he had a hat on, and they told him, you can't do that. And they thought that they somehow preserved some amazing, and I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're a mature believer. Like, let's set aside our cultural or our preferences, right, and put the gospel at the heart. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So we're called to preserve the gospel. We're called to fight for people. This is what, this is what we're made for. I remember... Uh, I remember I was on a trip with, um, with David, actually. We were in Texas, and we're doing stuff with Chi Alpha, which is a college ministry. And uh, he was the main speaker, and I was doing a breakout session. I remember we, we went there, and it was very interesting. Um, 
Because sometimes as a speaker, you're thought of being the expert, right? And we go, and it's at this retreat, and it's about 900 students. 300 of them are not Christians, but were invited by their friends who were Christians that had been fighting for them and discipling them and pouring into them. And we get there, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is Texas. You know, everybody's a Christian in Texas, right? Um, and so I started to have conversations with young adults, and every conversation I had was this. Yeah, when I came to this school, I wasn't a Christian, but that guy over there, he led me to Jesus. Like, he fought for me. He invited me to my, his small group for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I wouldn't go. And, 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 and I'd hear stories like, yeah, when I was drunk, he would come and pick me up and bring me home. And, and, and then he led me to the Lord and discipled me. And now these guys over here, these are my small group. And, and two of them I'm baptizing this weekend. And story after story after story of this. And the next day, we saw hundreds of college students getting baptized, and they were being baptized by their friends who led them to Jesus and discipled them. And I remember Dave and I sitting back like, why are we speaking? <laughs> like, what, what do we have to tell these people, right? And it was unbelievable and one of the things that impacted me on that trip was we were going to the, the, the location, the host church that was doing it. And on the drive there, the, the missionary who was running, he said to me, yeah, this, this pastor's awesome. He's, he's a great man. And he mentioned his name. And I was like, how do I know that name? And I remembered back and all of a sudden I realized that this was a man who had married and discipled my, discipled my parents before they were married and had actually married them and my aunt and uncle, right? And so I walk, into the, I walk into the building and I go up and I introduce myself. I say, hey, my name is Jared Berry. My parents are Steve and Brenda Berry. And, and Dave was there. He was almost in tears of joy, right? He could not believe. And here he is looking at me, never met me before in my life, probably had no idea what I was doing. And I'm a spiritual grandson to him, right? Because he was willing to fight for my parents spiritually now the fruit of them fighting for me spiritually, he gets to share in that. And any life that I've impacted, any person I've discipled, gets pointed back to his spiritual lineage, right? And actually, we got a picture. We can throw it up on there. This is, this is me meeting with them. And it was an amazing moment as to the impact that God can do through us if we're willing to commit to his mission. If we're willing to say, God, I'll fight for people. I'll go after people. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll direct my life around your mission. My job's awesome, right? The stuff I do for fun is awesome. Having toys and all that stuff is, is awesome. But, man, that's not what life's about. Life is about understanding who I am, my identity, and out of that, my mission. And God has graciously invited us to be a part of it. And if we're willing, like if we're willing to preserve and fight for a spiritual lineage, all of us when we reach the end of our lives, can look back, and maybe we'll never know until we get to heaven, but we can have spiritual grandsons and great-grandsons and granddaughters and great-granddaughters, and God will only know the impact that he had, not because we were willing to preach to the masses, but because we were willing to fight for a few. Man, that's discipleship. That's the mission of God. So this morning, could I, uh, could I ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes and I'm just going to, two things. Number one, the first is if you're here and you don't know Jesus, maybe for the first time you're kind of hearing the gospel and you're understanding that Christianity is not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you. And this morning you say, I, I need to put my faith and my hope in Jesus. I want to be able to pray with you. So if that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you. Say, man, this morning I want to put my faith in Christ and put my hope in Jesus. 
awesome. Anyone else? Let's throw that hand up. Amen. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. And for everybody else, here's what I want to do. We're going to take a minute of just being still, musical play, and I want you to pray this prayer. God, show me who you've called me to fight for. Maybe it's one name, maybe it's three names, maybe it's five names. God, show me the people in my life. Maybe it's coworkers, neighbors, family members. Maybe it's people in this church, God, but show me those who you've called me to fight for, that I can own your mission in a real way. And what I want you to do is after this minute's done, and I'll, I'll pray us out, is as, as God speaks those names to you, just write them down. Maybe write them on your notes and keep in your Bible if you want to write it in your phone, however you want to do it. But write those names down and have them as a reminder that I'm going to fight for these names. I'm going to fight for these people. And here's my prayer. In the next six months, year, maybe three years, maybe five years, we're going to see those names in this church and a part of this family. Let's take a minute and pray.